Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. This morning's scripture is from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food." The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The word of the Lord. Okay, good morning again. Um, <clears throat> a couple people, we've been doing this for a couple weeks now. Uh, the live streaming and in-person worship, glad you're here. Some people said, hey, you know, you used to wear a suit. What's going on that you're not wearing suits anymore? And the answer is, the pandemic has changed me. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll change back. Maybe I won't. I don't know yet. But I'm not going out and buying a new suit right now. So um, just thought... In case you guys were wondering what's going on, that's what's going on. All right, um, welcome again to our uh, live worship service. Thank you, Jenny, for, for reading that. And you know, I don't know if you know that the last song we just sang, Inheritance, is actually a song that she wrote. Um, we're very, very uh, blessed to be able to have uh, the music that we have here on, on a Sunday. Um, last week we looked at Nicodemus. This is chapter 3 of John, and we saw how... One of our core values is to um, value questions in those who ask them. And with Nicodemus, uh, we, what we see is we see Jesus actually valuing questions in those who uh, ask them. Because he's, he's engaging uh, Nicodemus, he's spending time with him. Uh, another one of our core values is that we, um, uh, or one of, is that we, we want to be a place here, Redeemer Lincoln Square wants to be a place where you're known, loved, and cared for. And those words just kind of get thrown out a lot. What does it mean to be known, loved, and cared for? Uh, we find that meaning uh, t- um, in this text right here, where to be simultaneously known and loved with Jesus. Last week we saw that it was a Pharisee, it was Nicodemus, and the person we see this week, one chapter later, is utterly different. Meaning that everyone... In between, you and me, whether you're a Christian here today, if you're not a, here, not a Christian, if you're somewhere in between when it comes to faith, Jesus can and will meet you where you are. So, the three things to see today are, Jesus meets you where you are, doesn't leave you where you are, because he sends you out from where you are. All right, Jesus meets you where you are, uh, doesn't leave you where you are, instead he sends you out from where you are. So first, Jesus meets you where you are. In our text, Jesus has uh, been in Judea. He's been talking to Nicodemus. And now he's going back to Galilee. This is in verse 4. And it says that he had to go through Samaria, which a lot of commentaries, I didn't know this, it's actually kind of a cheeky thing for John to say that he had to go through Samaria because geographically he didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, most people, uh, it it was faster, more direct, and advantageous to not go through there. So the question is, is why does John say he had to go through Samaria? I think the answer is because Jesus being Jesus, he knew that he had this meeting with the woman at the well. And what ensues, again, something I didn't know about this, this is actually the single longest conversation Jesus has with anybody in all the Gospels. Which means, 
we should probably look at this conversation. This is a, this is a conversation of importance. And uh, what, what happens is in noon, at noon, at, in verse, this is verse 6, at noon he shows up at the well, this is the hottest part of the day, and he asks for some water, and immediately a social crisis begins. And you say, okay, well, where's, where's the social crisis? I don't, I don't see a social crisis necessarily. And um, John alludes to it, I think, in verse 9 here. It says, Jesus did not associate, right, sorry, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Which is indeed true, because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They, it was almost like they were uh, so close, because of that closeness in, in, in ge- geogra- geographical spaces, they really disliked each other. They were the worst. They considered each other the worst. But that wasn't the only problem. It also, uh, you know, in addition, back then, the other parts of the social crisis here is that men and women didn't actually talk, like ever, in social situations. And they certainly didn't have theological conversations together like that happens here. In addition, he was considered a rabbi, a respected leader, and she was at the bottom of the social scale. Worse, again, she was there at noon, and this has been talked about a lot in very many, in a lot of spaces, that most people drew water at the beginning of the day because of all the activities that they would use that water with. They would clean, and they would cook, and um, you know, you, it was an arid climate. They were constantly using the water, but she went when nobody else was there, which a lot of people have pointed out. This is the only possible reason was that she was a moral outsider. So look at the contrast between Nicodemus and this woman. Nicodemus, cultural insider. She's a cultural outsider. Nicodemus was a man. She was a woman. He was upper class. She was lower class, which means then that every single barrier between her and Jesus was there. Gender, race, class, religion, morality. Nicodemus was a moral person. A Pharisee were the good guys. She was considered immoral. And yet he engages her. The question is, is why? Why does Jesus do this? And the answer is because Jesus meets you where you are. And, and this is what's, I think we have to push ourselves on this because I think a lot of us like to think that we have our minds wrapped around who Jesus is, that we, we understand him, we've pegged him, how he's going to interact with us, how we're going to interact with him. But time and time again, the writers of, of the gospel show that he breaks our categories. So, who can be known, loved, and cared for? Based on John 3 and John 4, between Nicodemus and this woman, and these two polar opposites, these extremes, it means Everyone, everybody, whether they're an insider or outsider, racial majority, racial minority, men or women, Jesus will meet you where you are. And he will break down every social barrier that is out there that the world puts up to do so. And you say, okay, all right, thanks, Mike. Why does that matter? It matters because you can't get this anywhere else. That you won't get this anywhere else. That the world, here's how the world works. The world goes like this. We will accept you for what you do. We will accept you for what you do. Do you believe what we believe? That's who's in or out. Will you champion what we champion? That's who's in or out. Will you dress and look the way that we look? That's who's in or out. I think we make fun of high school cliques where you have the kind of smart people over here and the sporty people over there and you know, the popular people over here, and we laugh at that, but 
every society in existence still has those things. And Jesus says, no, I don't, I'm not going to make you dress or act or perform. Come just as you are. And that phrase, I think, has been thrown around the church a lot. And I don't think we recognize how earth-shattering it really is. Think about it. Come just as you are is so radical because no one actually says that. And I'm going to push ourselves a little bit because I think as, you know, modern, sophisticated New Yorkers, we're like, yes, we're very accepting of all kinds of people. Of course we are. But then why is it that we always choose who we want to hang out with? Why is it that we, we, we definitely place ourselves around certain people? We let some people in, not other people out. We choose who we read. We choose what social media accounts to follow. See, I think we think we're more accepting than we really are. We actually are very selective of who we place ourselves around, who we'll sit with, who we'll invite into our homes. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. And so I guess before we move on, we need to ask ourselves, if Jesus will meet you where you are, will you let him in? Have you let him in recently into your lives? Have you let him into your hurts over the past seven months? Have you let him into the dark spaces? Have you let him into uh, the needs and desires that you have? Stop putting off meeting Jesus. Stop waiting for him. You might think you're meeting him because you like have an intellectual idea of him, but that's not actually experiencing and tasting and being with him. Stop waiting to see him. Don't say, oh, he'll never understand me. Right? He sits with everyone. Don't say, oh, he doesn't have time for me. He goes out of his way geographically to get to you. Jesus will meet you where you are. One. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Now two, but he won't leave you where you are. And what does that mean? I think two things happen to this woman at the very same time in our text. One, she's accepted. And we see this through the line of questioning. In fact, we've already brought it up once. Is that the fact that he even engages her in the first place shows his acceptance. Where, where everybody else in the society, whether they were Samaritan or Jew, they did not accept her. Every other individual would not do that. And so the fact he engages is a form of acceptance. And you know this, right? If you really want to, um, to, to go against somebody else's humanity, the answer is don't get angry at them. If you get angry at them, you're actually still acknowledging their presence. You know what we do now? Ghost. What we do is we, we indifference. Unacknowledgement is actually the, hard, the worst thing you do to somebody because you're denying their humanity. But Jesus doesn't do that. The second thing that we do that, that he does to show this acceptance is the particular type of questions that he asks. So notice the initial conversation was, hey, will you draw some water for me? But then it becomes quickly a theological conversation 
about living water. So it's one thing to go to somebody else and say, hey, will you help me out? It's another thing to turn into a conversation where actually he's helping her out. That's a kind of acceptance. At first Jesus says, hey, help me drink water, but then he's turned it around and let me help you now drink water. So that's the first thing we see. He accepts her. Now, secondly though, he confronts her. She wants the living water in verse 15. Jesus, perceiving what her real problem is, says, sure, sure, go call your husband. And her reply is, well, I have no husband. And that's actually, that's actually kind of telling. I didn't know this. But when, when as, I, as I was looking at the scripture, this passage, while her statement, I have no husband, is technically true, she's actually still hiding. She's hiding the, the real nature of, of what she's about. And so Jesus, seeing this, confronts her again. Taking the little morsel of truth that she did, the, the kind of truth that she didn't have a husband, and expands on it. He says what? He says, you're right. You have no husband. You actually have had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. Which Jesus is basically saying this. He's going this. He's saying, I see you. I see all of you. I see the parts of you that you're actually hiding. And I know about those parts too. It reminds me sometimes of the, confronta- conf- uh, the confrontations I've had with my own kids. Right? There'll be like a plate of cookies on the table and all of a sudden they're gone. And, I, and, you know, and I'm like, who ate the cookies? And they go, I, 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 there are no cookies. And I'm like, you're right. But you've had five cookies. I, by the way, I've, I've never actually done that. That would be kind of messed up to do that to my kids. But there's confrontation. Look at the confrontation here. It's... it's it's unfolding. It's, it's firm. It's gentle, but it's firm. It's gradual. And so he gives her acceptance. There, there is breathtaking, cultural, category-busting acceptance happening here that nobody else would dream of offering her. And yet, he also candidly exposes exactly who she is. Becky Pippert, in one of her books, uh, point, pointed this out. Um, that if you really want to understand what's going on here, you have to ask, why is Jesus even um, asking her to go get her husband in the first place? It looks like kind of a non sequitur, doesn't it? Hey, I want some living water. Go get your husband. You're like, how's that, how do those things go together? And I think what you have to get at is you have to know the metaphor of water. Right? Water in an arid climate like this is life. And so... If you drink water, you live. If you don't drink water, you die. If you have spiritual water, you live. If you don't have living water, you spiritually die. And so when Jesus says, go get your husband, what's actually happening here, the implication is that you are seeking living water from the wrong wells. And that you are seeking living water in this area, and it's actually not Working. In fact, he says, you want living water. If you really want it, you first have to stop going to the streams and the wells and the water sources that, you're, that you've been going to in the past. Because they're not going to fulfill you. Uh, Psalm 42, the psalmist there says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. See, what the psalmist there is saying My soul needs God as much as our bodies need water. 
right? And, that, and so here, here's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not just talking about intellectual belief of God. Intellectual assent, I believe in God. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the same thing as tasting and drinking and experiencing him. In fact, this woman actually had a belief in God. It was in her cultural values to already believe in God. So, G- so Jesus is not saying believe in God. She already did. Living water means something radically different than that. So in other words, this is what it means. You can believe in God, but professional success is your real water. You can believe in God, but really material comfort is your water. Right? You can believe in God, but but money, status, real water. So what was hers? Hers was men. It was relationships. It was that special someone was her real water. And Jesus is saying, you, I want you to have living water, but those other water sources are not going to work. And so what well, before we move on, what well of water are you, are you drinking from that you're going to today that won't work? What are, what are, you, what are you hoping to quench your thirst with? Is it the, is it the water of, of control? Is it drinking from people approval? Is it sipping material comfort? What, is, what are the things? He confronts her. What, G, what might Jesus be confronting you with today? Because Jesus will meet you where you are, but he'll never leave you where you are. He's going to put together radical acceptance and radical confrontation. And I think this is actually important. If he only accepted her, just acceptance, she wouldn't have changed. And yet if he only confronted her, if he was like, how dare you, shame on you, that wouldn't have changed her either. Think about your own life, right? That when somebody is only super nice and accepting and, oh, sweetie, let me give you a hug, you don't know what you don't know about yourself in those situations. To change people, you have to tell them the truth. However, if somebody comes and just smacks you with a super hard truth, what do you say? You say, you don't know who I am. And you walk away. The power to change comes when acceptance and confrontation is fused together. It's truth and love. Love without truth destroys you because when somebody withholds that truth, you don't know what you don't know. You, you, you don't know what's really wrong with you. You can't see your blind spots and your hurts. And I think we, we do this. Here's, what, here's the problem. We err on withholding that, stu- that truth from other people because we don't want to be intolerant. We don't want to be mean. We don't, we don't want to hurt somebody. But that's like a doctor not telling their patient they have cancer. Because if you, that doctor withholds that information, they're going to die faster, worse. Because if you withhold that truth, they're unaware of what's wrong. I don't know if you've seen this. Some studies have been coming out about uh, children that when they were kids, uh, when they played sports, they got the, part- the participation trophy. There's the trophy. Hey, good job. Here you go. Here's a trophy. But not, not one that actually shows the difference of who's won and who's lost. And what they found is those children who grow up in, as in, when they get to college and then beyond as adults, they tend to be paralyzed with fear of making the wrong choice. Because they've always, have just been, they've always just been given what they needed to get. But because they've never been confronted where they've been wrong, they never knew who actually, where they stood in the order of things. Without that confrontation, now there's no growth in their life. 
So love without truth destroys. However, truth without love, I, th- I would call, I would say, obliterates. It, it, it blows you up. When you tell somebody the truth, but there's no acceptance, and there's no love, and there's no care behind it, I think there's a probably zero chance they listen to you. When I was, uh, I was taking a public speech, uh, speaking course, uh, I think it was in college, a long time ago, and they, you, know, you had to film yourself, and then, you, and then what you would do is you'd go to class, and every class was just every, everybody ripping apart your speech. And so you don't say a thing, and they just say everything about it, and by the end, everybody resents everybody else. It was funny, at the beginning of the class, everybody was talking and stuff, you know, early in the semester, by the end, nobody talked to anybody else. Because we just ripped each other apart, and you don't listen to each other. Why? If my wife says to me, Michael, you're being a jerk right now. There is a relationship of love that undergirds that, that allows me to enter into it and say, what's going on here? If the guy walking down the street says, it screams at me, doesn't know who I am, says, you're a jerk, it's, it's very unlikely I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, who the heck are you? This is why I think I always stress having a relationship with somebody before you actually feel like confronting. I think we actually, as a, as a New Yorkers, assume we have a stronger relationship than what we really have. And then they wonder, like, why is this person not listening to me? Because it, it, truth without love drives people further from the truth. So it's actually less true than you think. They're further away from the truth than when you began the conversation. Right, so good luck confronting somebody they don't know that you have their best interest in mind. On the other hand, love without truth isn't really love because, as we just said, loving people that leave them where they are is not really that loving. But speaking truth in love, to fuse together with the sweetness and tenderness of care brings change. And I've, I've, I've asked myself this week, why is this work this way? Why is the universe set up this way where it only works with truth and love put together? And I had a moment of clarity where I think it's the reason why these things always go together is that's exactly what happens on the cross. Because on the cross, you have the hardest truth that you could ever possibly hear fused with the most astonishing love that you could ever feel. The truth is this. On the cross, Jesus is saying to you, you are so lost. You are so messed up. I had to die for you. Sin is taking what? Anything and making it more important to you than God himself. That's what it means to drink from the wells of of other waters. And we do that every day, every hour, every minute. When you walk out of this room, you might start, your mind is going to go in that direction. Not just think, don't just think about who have you spoken about unkindly. Not just who have you thought about unkindly. Think about the parts how when we, we take truth and we shade it, we hide it, we, we spin it, um, we keep it from other people because we don't want the fallout. Maybe we polish the truth. We want this part over here to shine a little bit more than this part over here. Right? That, that, that's what we end up doing. See, the truth of the cross says we aren't who we're supposed to be, and yet the love of the cross is Jesus says, I'm going to die for you because I love you that much. Jesus is saying, I love you so much, you mean more to me than the universe. I'm willing to die for you. I died for you before you even knew you needed it. I died for you even though you have a conception of it, you still don't know the depth of it. That's what Jesus is saying. Right? And so when Jesus says, I thirst for you so so that we don't have to thirst, 
I die so that you can live. That's truth and love slammed together. When Jesus did, what Jesus did for her, this acceptance and confrontation, I think the gospel can do for every single one of us. It's like looking into a mirror and, and being able to have the ability to say, I'm not as great as I thought I was. I, I have major flaws. I have, I have things that I've been trying to hide my whole life from myself and from others. Unhealed wounds. Things that are really hard to accept. And unless the weight of that truth is fused with the enormity of God's love, you can't handle it. You won't be able, you won't even want to go that way. Unless you sit in the unconditional, radical, free grace that I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you. Unless you can sit there in his realness and relentless love, you won't be able to face the fact that you're lost and tired and sad. In fact, you can only face your brokenness if you already know that you're accepted. You can because, you can't, but he can. You won't, but he will. No other faith, no other human position that I know of allows you to even enter into these spaces because the gospel boiled down is truth and love. All right, last point. How does this then send you out? How does this send you out from where you are? Let's get very practical here at the end. Remember again where she is. She's at the well at noon. She's there to avoid people. She's there to, she's moved away from community. Slowly she's getting away from them. And if we're honest with ourselves, by the way, all the statistics are showing the trend for Americans is we're isolating ourselves more and more and more with technology because it's comfortable. I, don't, I, can only, I can actually only have to read the things I want to read and see the people I want to see. And it's isolating us in, into these siloed spaces through our technology. And this woman has done the same thing, but what happens when she sees Jesus? Not just knows about him, not just talks to him, but actually finally sees the reality of who he is. She becomes a different person. This is in verse 28 and following. And I think it's the key verse in the whole text, uh, and it shows us five things. One, she leaves her jar. This is actually a pretty big deal. She leaves her jar. Commentaries show that the original purpose, the meaning of her life, the old way of doing things changes. And it's pretty dramatic. She's in a hot climate. The most important thing is water. And she drops it. It's not that it, by the way, doesn't matter anymore. She does have to drink water at some point in her life. But it doesn't matter as much as it used to. Leaving her jar is leaving how she used to live. Leaving her jar is leaving work as the most important thing in your life. And so I guess moving on, what is that for you? What have you left for him? Have you left your jar? Leave your jar in light of who he is. All right, one, two, where did she go? The second thing that we see here is that she goes back to town. Now, why would she go back to town? Because I thought you just said he's, she's been trying to avoid people. Yeah, but she's different now. She came here at noon. And that's why she couldn't even believe Jesus was even talking to her in the first place. So why go back to town? It's not because out of gratitude. I was thinking about this. If it was gratitude, she'd want to sit with Jesus more. If it was a new awareness of Jesus, she would sit with Jesus more. 
So why go back to town? The one answer, the only reason I can come up with is the things that were keeping her away from others is now gone. Before, they didn't want to see her and she didn't want to see them. But now, she goes into the very center of town. She goes. She's sent. And that really hit me this week. Do we live our lives as if we're sent people? Do we live our lives as if we have a missional space where we're like, I am called to that people group over there. I'm called to New York. I'm called to be here. See, I think often we just kind of say, well, I'm trying to make some money and live a good life and get some comfort and go up the scale and do this and do that. That's not sent. She sees herself as sent now. She goes, and my question to you is, will you go too? Where are you going? Whom are you going to? Where are we as a church going? What do we want to, I mean, and, and who is that people too? That's what we need to do here. To be sent, being sent to a place changes how you even see it. How you, how you, what you're asking from this city changes based on if you feel like you're sent here or not. Will you be sent? There's so much more I can say there, but we're going to move on. Thirdly, once she goes, what does she say? She says, come and see. Right? She says, come and see a man. Now notice she doesn't give an argument at first. She doesn't have her list of bullet points. She doesn't have a prepared statement. I'm sure she will get into theological conversations maybe at some point, but that's not how she starts. She starts not with an argument, but with a person. Do we, when we present, do we do so out of knowing Jesus as a person? Do we live that way first? Whatever it means to have your life changed by Jesus, it's not just a theological conversation, but for most, it means not hiding the person who's changed you. In other words, if Jesus is a person, it means you let other people know how he, as a person, has changed your priorities. How he, as a person, has changed you. Just like the original disciples, by the way, right? They were fishers of fish. They became fishers of men, but they didn't have all the answers. They had a relationship with Jesus, and that was enough. I feel like often we as professionals feel like we have all the answers, but the disciples didn't. She didn't, and she could still go. You don't have to have the answers. You know what you have to have? A relationship with him. In fact, I was thinking about this. Does our lives represent come and see a man? That's, that's, what we're, that's what we're trying to ask ourselves. Because if you call yourself a Christian and your life is not in constant t- contact with Jesus, if, if, if he's not accepting you and confronting you at the same time in your life, it's possible you actually might know some arguments for Jesus, but you actually don't know Jesus. That's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to <laughs> be confronted with. Maybe Jesus is confronting you today. Do you see him as a person? Do you present him as a person? You go, but what do you do? You say, come and see a man. Fourthly, she says, come and see what a man who told me everything I ever did. The woman who everybody in town was shunning. The woman so full of shame, so unable to show her face. She suddenly is now showing her face. And what does she say? He told me what? Everything I ever did. And this, this folks, this is breathtaking to watch because she has this boldness now, this ability to say, yeah, 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 that was who I was, but that's not who, now who I am. When somebody can come and own up to who they are and admit it, 
and confess it and move forward, it's a breathtaking thing to watch. It's so attractive because nobody does that in our society. But she could, and the question is, is can you? Can you say to your friends and your loved ones, I was, but, not, but I'm not this now. See the man who, who showed me everything I ever did. Could you handle the rebuke? Yeah, you could, if you knew the acceptance. She could, but could you? It would be breathtaking to watch. What if we had this radical repentance in our church? What if we were lightning quick to admit and to apologize and to confess to each other? If, that, if we did, that speed would allow us to admit, actually, and probably slow down our judgments of other people. We are so quick to say, you. But what if this actually was in us? To the degree that you knew Jesus' acceptance of you, despite your very, your very flaws, every hidden secret in your heart, and he said to you, I see it all and I pay it all, that would change the way we treat each other and how we would treat the world. We'd be so much more careful with each other. All right, last thing. We're out of time. The last thing she says is, could this be the Messiah? And I actually never noticed this until this week. In verse 26, Jesus actually says, I'm the Messiah. He actually says, I am he. She knew he was the Messiah. So why is she bringing up the question? I think the answer is, she's trying to draw them out. She's actually trying to draw them in. She's putting the truth in love instead of saying, this is the Messiah. I'm going to beat you over the head with it. She's pricking their interest. She's inviting them into a story. She's willing to say, let's do this together. She's not just saying, here's some content. Go figure it out on your own. She's saying, through this question, she's given a question of invitation, a question of discovery. Jesus spoke truth to her in love. And so now she's starting that same process for others. And so, of course... You have to invite other people into that story. You have to be in their story. If we're going to be a church where you're known, loved, and cared for, right, being that family, put to, letting that affect us, then you can be a family out into, with others. To be fully known and fully loved then allows us to be fully cared for and we can be the family together. A church where you are known, loved, and cared for invites others into that story. Will we be that? Recap. Drop your jar. Be sent. Come and see. One who tells me everything I've ever done and still accepts me. So now I confuse truth and love and go out and be part of their stories. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a long passage, the longest we see. And there is so much here. I pray that we would first turn away from the waters that we're seeking something to satisfy what only you can satisfy. Father, change us, remake us, move us out. Just like this woman, help us to drop the jars of our life, the things we're trying to juggle and balance and keep together. Not the fact these things don't matter, we're going to do them. Make, make our priority list change, but then help us to go, help us to be sent. I feel like we, we, we don't have that intentionality often. I don't. Give us a purpose and meaning to our geographical location and, and give us a, a deeper calling to where, not just to whom, but where we're called. And help us to see, come and see a man 
who showed me everything, I, everything about me and still accepted me. That radical, fused gospel truth changes the world and changes us. Turn our hearts and minds towards you. We pray these things in, our, in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.